we should definitely pray. Let's pray together. Father God, help us to be unbelievably grateful that you would choose to speak and then you would have your word recorded in this book. So grant us a, a hunger for it. Help our souls, our minds, our bodies, our hearts, our affections long to hear what you have to say. And grant us a humility that we would bow our knees beneath your word as it comes to, to encourage us and to inspire us and to teach us and to challenge us and at times to rebuke us, to urge us. Father, what we pray for every week is what every single person in this room needs most, whether this is their first Sunday ever in a church service, God, whether they've been walking with you for 24 years, whether they're coming back to church after being gone for a long time, God, whatever, whatever we come in with, what every single person here needs most is to leave this place more impressed with King Jesus. All that he has accomplished, all that he has done, and all that he promises to do. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would lift Christ high in this place that you might draw us after him. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I am uh, fascinated by the range of fitness crazes. I don't typically follow them, but I am fascinated by all the, the various advice on how to work out, how to be healthy, nutrition, for example. So like here's a diet that's becoming more and more popular. I think it's Joe Rogan's diet. It's the carnivore diet. All you do is basically eat meat. I got a buddy who follows it. All you do is eat meat and then raw honey, and then you can have some fruit. But here's what I love about this diet. No vegetables. <laughs> like zero vegetables. They actually, the, according to this diet, I believe this is the one, vegetables are poison. So, and we all know that's true because we were forced to eat them as children. See, we knew something when our younger age, right? So vegetables are poison. What you eat of a plant is a vegetable is the thing that tastes terrible that uses itself to defend itself from animals actually eating it. So you have the carnivore diet, but then you have the vegetarian diet that basically says the exact opposite, that, that the way towards health is to never eat any animal or anything produced by an animal. Or then you have people that kind of hedge their bets and they're pescatarians. And so they'll, 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 they'll eat the veggies and they'll eat fish because fish aren't animals. Um, <laughs> you got intermittent fasting. You pick times where you just don't eat at all. That was a diet that I took on a few years ago and lost a bunch of weight. Problem is I started eating again and it has found me. Um, back in the 80s and 90s, I remember this was like the craze. You'd go to the grocery store and you had boxes of like, you had the regular wheat thins and then you had the low fat wheat thins and they had a little green bar. And then you had like whatever was regular, the regular Chips Ahoy and then ah, I'm on a diet. Okay, get the low fat Chips Ahoy cookies. And then we realized like this low fat, high carb diet is basically what we filled to feed the cattle in order to fatten them up so people can be on the carnivore diet. And so we are now in the just eat a stick of butter diet. Um, Rabbit and bacon. Um, you could ask this question. Like I found, you know, we could say, what do you eat? Or you could ask, like, how to live past 100. I found an article from 2015, 13 Secrets to Living Longer from the World's Oldest People. Masao Okazaki, 117 years old. Here's how she did it. Eat really good sushi and sleep well. Jarlene Talley, 115. I love her suggestion, Pork. Specifically, specifically hogshead cheese, which is pig's ear and feet in jelly. 
But she lived to be 115. It might be worth trying. Bernardo Lopolo is an Italian guy, 111. He says, here's what you do. At the end of every night, you massage your feet in olive oil. <laughs> Jesse Gellman, 109. This is what Jesse says. You want to live to be over 100? Stay away from men. <laughs> Some of you are like, Amen. <laughs> Sorry, he had everything from like drink like five cups of coffee a day, eat raw eggs, do five to seven push-ups every morning. And then one person said, here's how you live to be over 100, kindness, kindness. Saw a video recently, a 104-year-old woman, and uh, it's kind of viral right now. And she says the way she's lived to be that old is she started 40, year, 40 years ago drinking three Dr. Peppers a day. She goes, you know, the doctors keep telling me that that stuff will kill me, but they keep dying and I'm still living. <laughs> I love her. <laughs> if you want to be healthy, who do you listen to? Like, who's right? Like, who, who actually has the, the blueprint for what it means to be healthy? As we look at Titus chapter 2, and then as we get into chapter 3 in the next coming weeks, it's about health. It's about spiritual health. It's about relational health. It's about vitality in our, our faith, in, our, our, in every aspect of our lives. What does it look like to be healthy is Titus chapter 2 verse 1 says, we'll read this in a minute, but it says, I want you, Titus, to teach what accords with sound doctrine. The, the, this, what, this word sound meaning healthy. I want you to teach this new church on this island of Crete what it looks like to be healthy people. I really debated how to work through this text. As you're about to hear, there is a ton to unpack in it. Um, so what I decided to do today, and we may revisit this text later on, but what I want to do today is a bit of a flyover over the text, give us some handles for how to navigate it as we dive in. Um, so we're going to look at four, four kind of handles. Conformity. All of us are going to conform to something. Every single one. Even the anarchist conforms to something called anarchy. All of us conform to something. Clarity. Just going to try to unpack the text briefly. There's a lot of different handles, a lot of descriptions, just what is it saying and then a little bit of what is it not saying. Charity, how do we live out what we're going to hear from in this text, what we're called to in real life, in the everyday stuff of our lives, it's going to look different for each of us. So how do we do that well with one another? And then opportunity. What happens when we live out God's design for us well, conformity, clarity, charity, and opportunity. If you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? This is God's perfect, flawless, always good for us word. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Feel free to grab a seat. 
there is a ton, a ton going on in those 10 verses. And up in verse one, we get a couple of clues to orient us around. It says, but as for you, I want you to teach what accords with sound doctrine. And there's this hinge happening from chapter two, from the end of, of chapter one. In chapter one, there was false teachers that, that had come into the church claiming to be Christians. They had kind of a veneer of it, but their lives and their teaching were destructive and they were upsetting the church and they were causing destruction. He says, I want you to be different than what they're teaching. I want you to instruct in a way that is different than how they're instructing. I want you to be able to teach what accords with, is fitting with, is related to, flows from sound or healthy doctrine, God's truth. And what this is saying is something like this. Healthy doctrine or truth tends towards health. Unhealthy ideologies or falsehoods or even half-truths tend towards illness or sickness. Denny Burke says this. He says, sound doctrine is the lifeblood of the Christian faith. It is the life-giving, authoritative deposit of truth. So it's very helpful in a world full of so many messages and so many statements and so many claims about what it means to actually be healthy, to what is the good life and how does one pursue it. Contrast that with what was happening in Crete, people that, that were, were, were really messed up in a lot of ways in the church, outside the church, and the influences that were coming in. We would say this is a very worldly way to live. David Wells, in a great, very helpful book called Losing Our Virtue, says this, worldliness is that system of values in any given age which has at its center our fallen human perspective which displaces God and his truth from the world and which makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. That is a monster of a quote. That way of, of, of looking at the world without reference to God and his word that begins to make the things that he says are beautiful and good and right to be ugly and harmful and oppressive and to take those things that are enslaving and harmful and say that those things are right. And what Paul, the one who helped plant these churches in Crete, is writing back to Titus, who he left there as kind of a pastoral assistant to organize the church, is saying, I want you to, to teach these people, I want you to teach them that which accords with God's word, not the world's ways. John Stott says it like this, Christian doctrine is healthy in the same way as the human body is healthy. For Christian doctrine resembles the human body. It is a coordinated system consisting of different parts which relate to one another and together constitute a harmonious whole. If therefore our theology is maimed with bits missing or diseased, with bits distorted, it is not sound or healthy. The last part of that quote I think is very helpful and will lead into a question that I invite you to consider. If something's missed, something gets removed from, if something is twisted, it becomes unhealthy. Here's a question for all of us. As these verses were read, what was your initial reaction? Like, which ones did you hear and say, yes, of course, that makes tons of sense. Yes, that's what I want to pursue. Yes, that's, I think, what we, we should pursue. That's what healthy would look like. Was there anything that we just read that you immediately kind of bristled against? That you said, oh, that, does, that doesn't land on me well. Maybe, maybe it could be from past experiences and how it got lived out. We'll try to address some of that in a minute. Maybe it's just, it feels so dissonant with our cultural moment that you just go like, that, that can't be right. There are most definitely some verses in there that go against the grain of our culture, but that's the point of this passage. But as for you, 
See, we're not supposed to go with the grain of our culture, but to live according to the contours of God's word. Let me just read Romans 12, 1 through 2, another passage of the Bible. And I, I love this paraphrase uh, out of the Phillips uh, translation. It says it like this, with eyes wide open to the mercies of God. I beg you, my brothers or my brothers and sisters, as an act of intelligent worship to give him your bodies as a living sacrifice. Just saying all of it's his. Consecrated to him and acceptable by him. And then cluing on this, don't let, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold, but let God remold your minds from within so that you may prove and practice that the plan of God for you is good, meets all his demands, and moves towards the goal of true maturity. Titus chapter 2 and 3, and obviously so much of the Bible, is, is God remolding us, God, reshape, God rehabbing us, God giving us the right nutrition and the right patterns of, of living that we might flourish, and our homes would flourish, our families and our cities would flourish, our cultures, our workplaces would flourish. He said, I want you to be conformed to that. Conformity. All of us conform to something. The question would be what? Um, let me give, try to do a little bit of clarity. Verses 1 through 10, I'm only going to even get to verse 6, and even that's going to be a, a, a zoom over. Um, but what we have in this is six or three different pairings, six different kind of parties. You have older men and older women to younger men and younger women, and then you have bond servants to, to employers or to masters. Um, there is both overlap in some of these categories, and there is distinction. Um, th there's a various charge given to each. I love the way the ESV Study Bible says it. What this is giving us is instruction in proper living by age and gender. I'll give you a few handles before we get into the specifics. This is not exhaustive. These aren't the only things God's word says about what it means to try to live remolded into the patterns that are healthiest for us. It's not exhaustive. There's other parts of the Bible that talk about virtues and behavior and maturity and all sorts of things. This is prescriptive. This wasn't just words given to the first century church, but it has meaning and bearing for our lives now. There is a way in which we're all, to, if you're here as a Christian, to receive these words and say, God is not just giving me his opinion. He's telling me how things work best. It's prescriptive, but it's not detailed. We're given a principle more than a detailed practice. To be sober-minded, to not be slaves of wine, to be dignified, to be reverent in behavior, to not gossip. But, 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 but what does that look like on a Tuesday afternoon? What, what does that look like in the context of a, of, a, of a marriage? What's that look like for a 23-year-old single guy? What's that look like for a, a 74-year-old widow? What, what, what does that look like in our, in our lives? It actually doesn't go into that. It gives us some handles, some principles in which then to press down into the everyday stuff of our life. And this point can't be overstated. We're going to come back to this as we talk about charity but, but one of the biggest ditches that we step in as Christians and as churches is by making declarative statements on how these things work out specifically for everyone in every situation. All right. Let's look at verses two through four, um, the older men and the older women. I was on a 5 a.m. flight to, to Dallas this past Monday. I was going down there. I was talking at a, uh, at a conference. I was doing a workshop, and, and we're sitting in the airport, and it's like 4 a.m. You know, everyone's kind of milling around, getting ready to, to board here in a minute, and I saw a bona fide cowboy at 
the airport. And you always know it's a cowboy because there's the big brimmed hat. There's this probably a 60-something-year-old guy. You know, he's been outside his whole life, has this big hat. He's got the, the boots on. He's, he's got the, the shirt that's but, you know, it's, it's tucked in for sure, and it's got the little pearl buttons all the way up, and then he's got Wrangler jeans. I don't, I don't know where you buy those, but you, you have Wrangler jeans, and, and there's a crease, like a perfect crease down the front and the back of them, and then the back pocket, there's that unmistakable circle where, you know, there's a can of like Copenhagen or Skull, probably bubblegum nowadays. I don't know what it is, but, but I remember I was at a rodeo. I was at the Pendleton Roundup like 20 years ago, and we were, we're sitting in this rodeo, and during the parade, they're going through, and people were throwing out cans of skull in Copenhagen. I just blew me away because that's the cowboy way. And as I watched him amongst all these other people, here's what blew me away. Here's a thought I had. I've never had this thought before. I go, I've never seen a cowboy yawn. I mean, I've never seen a cowboy yawn. I mean, everyone else was like, oh, get me coffee. You know, this guy straight as an arrow, just totally dialed. Looks like he, you know, he'd been sleeping for 10 hours. I don't know. He'd probably been up for three days doing some like cattle drive. I have no idea what he was doing, but there's just like, it felt like there's this kind of cultural ethos. If you're a cowboy, you don't show weakness. And so I've never seen one yawn. I've never seen one cry. When I watch rodeo, you watch some guy get slammed off of a bull, stepped on, and his forearm is snapped in half, and he just gets up, dusts off his hat, and then wanders, moseys, moseys, you know, <laughs> to the back. It's just like that's, that's, you know, I've never seen a cowboy not hold the door for a lady. I've never, I've never not seen that. I've never seen a cowboy not say, yes, ma'am, and then, you know, tip the hat. I've just never, I've, ne- I've never, I've never not seen that because there is a way of being. There's like a, a way of expressing being a cowboy, you grow up with a certain expectation and image of what to become. Titus 2, if you get nothing else, is saying we need godly role models that show us what it looks like to be about Christ, to show us the Christian way. Real life versions of what it looks like to say my affections are increasing for Christ and this world is losing its grip on me. To not walk in the way that we grow up in the world, but to say God's way is better for us to actually get a real-life view of them. One of God's key strategies to grow us is to put us into a church with multiple generations that we might look to those that have gone before us and have traveled further than us and say, what does it look like to pattern my life after them, to learn from them? And we see that in verses 2 through 4. Verse 2 with older men, verses 3 through 4, older women. Older men, to be sober-minded, to be right-thinking, to be dignified, to be self-controlled, to be sound in faith and love and steadfastness. These are, these are men who know the word of God. These are men whose minds are filled with the word of God. They've stored his word up upon their hearts, that they, they, they bring his word into situations regularly. They bring his wisdom to bear, not perfectly, but they live respect-worthy lives. If I was going to pick one word to, to capture this, I might say these are men that have a certain bearing to them. There's just some guys, when they, when they talk, you lean in and listen a little more. When they give you advice, you remember it. They have the, I love the, the word gravitas. There's a gravity to them. You say, I, I would like my daughters to grow up and marry men of that caliber. I'd like my sons to become those types of men. Again, not perfectly, but there is something distinct about them. That's what Titus, or that's what Paul here is holding up as a, as a godly example. At the end of June, I'll give you an example of someone in our church, and I could pick almost at random some of the wonderful seasoned saints we have. Um, 
the end of June, I was taking a couple weeks off with my family, and it's not unusual when I'm taking time off for vacation to, to have a hard time, like, unplugging, I'm sure, like you and your, in your jobs as well. And, uh, and so I'm taking some time off, and that first night I have a dream about our church. And it's not uncommon for me to dream about the church. As I'm dreaming about the church, I'm, I'm thinking of different people in the church, and you're showing up in my, my dream. And, you know, real faces, real names, real situations, real stories. You know, this couple is really struggling uh, with infertility. This, 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 this couple that's really, their, their marriage, boy, it's just really having a hard time right now. The, the, these people that, are, that financially, they're just, they don't know what they're going to do. And then people with all sorts of, of sicknesses and, and, and cancer, and I'm having this dream, and I'm just really like worked up in my dream, just like frantically running around, and then there's a guy from our church who showed up in my dream, and his name is Rock, and uh, he, Rock shows up, and he looks at me in, in my dream, looks me in the face, and he gives me this very caring smile. If, you're, if you know Rock, the, he has a smile that for me, it feels like Christ is smiling at me. I just see this countenance, this reflection of a man who has spent time with my Savior, and he just smiles at me in this very kind way, and he says, Rob, we can handle this. Go rest. And then behind him, you know, it's these other people in our church that, that we carry this together, and when I think of, of someone who encapsulates this text, is someone who, when, when I look at them, I, I, there's just a calming effect that they, they, they have. I remember when I was getting the, the joy to, to do his, his wedding in the last couple of years, about four years ago now, I said, Mary and Patty, he read a, a letter um, and he looked at Patty's sons and, and just, he just looked these boys, these grown men in the eye and said, I will always take care of your mom. And you believed it. That's what this is. Someone who doesn't just say it, but they have the track record that supports it. Godly women, reverend in behavior, they're not slanders. Denny Burke phrases that verbal, they don't do verbal assassination of someone's character. They're not gossips. The, the term there is diabolos. It's, they don't do the devil's work. They're not slaves to much wine. And it's, probably a good, it's probably a good phrase when we talk about things like mommy juice and the jokes that we do. They're not slave to it. They can enjoy it without being enslaved to it. So they can teach what is good. That, again, which accords with sound doctrine. They, they know it so they can teach it, so they can train up the, the young women. They can mentor them and have them be apprentices. Maybe I'd summarize all of that with the first little phrase there. The reverent in behavior, that word reverent functions like a fountainhead to all the other stuff. It's this word hierapolis. It's, it's, it's related to holy. They're holified. They're, they're set apart in their behavior. One translation actually says they function like priestesses in the household of God. In our church, there are many godly older men. There are many godly older women worthy of imitation. Um, I think in our church, so I didn't, I didn't coin this phrase, so, so don't send me an email. But, but the ladies who are, I think the ones, I think you gotta be 50 or above, I think. I wasn't corrected after the first service, so I think it's 50 or above, and then you get welcomed into the church ladies club. So, so if you haven't been invited and you're over 50, well, praise God, you look under 50. So, um, but, but the, 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 it's the church ladies, and I always think of the, the movie Grease, if you never saw it, you had, the, you, had the, you had the pink ladies, and they had these pink satin jackets, and on the back it said pink ladies, and I just want to get them all a jacket that just says church ladies. I just think it's fantastic. They love this church. 
the, the amount, if you added up how they serve this church, I, I, don't, I don't think we, could, we couldn't calculate. We couldn't quantify the way they pray, the way they love, the way they show up, the way they invest, the way they care, the way they weep with, the way they mentor, the way they show up, providing meals and, and caring for kids and, and having hard, good conversations with younger people. In our, it is absolutely necessary. If you permit me, I'd also like to honor my wife. I don't know anybody that exemplifies this passage more than, more than my wife. She has been such a faithful presence even as a younger woman. She's still a very young woman. As, as, <laughs> Rock's going to tell me to be quiet here in a sec. Yeah, <laughs> I see you. Um, even in our like, early marriage, I remember she just had that book, you know, The Power of a Praying Wife, and boy, she got to praying for me. And God answered those prayers. It just changed. I was, I was such a massive idiot. And now I'm just a regular idiot. And so <laughs> the power of a praying one. And, and she has been such an incredible, strong partner throughout all of ministry. She helped plant this church. If you're at all grateful for Redeemer Church, you should thank her. This would not exist. And there's a number of people involved. I don't want to just feature her, but God's grace through her. This church, she was so... So prayerful, so encouraging, so affirming, so hardworking. In the early years, as our, our second oldest was about a year old, Owen's about a year old, she would put him in one of these baby carriers and she would rearrange the, the trailer because we were set up in Teardown Church. She'd go on the trailer, she's sitting there moving stuff around. She got Owen attached to her like some sci fi film. You know, it's just, it's just incredible. Then she would go and teach the kids ministry and she'd recruit the volunteer and she would just say, Rob, you can do this. And as she continues to, to grow, um, I'm in a weird spot, in age. <laughs> like that godliness is just that much more profound. As she spends her mornings praying and reading God's word, and she invests, and she loves you. Oh, she loves this church. See, our church needs people like that, 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 have, that, have, that have gone a few steps further, that we can look at and see the Christian way, see a, a version of it. Originally, the title of the sermon was In Praise of Older Saints. That's why I'm capped out here so long. In praise of older saints. It's like ARP Christianity. Um, it's one of the things I love most about Redeemer is the generations that the Lord has seen fit to, to bring us, spiritual mothers and fathers and uncles and, and aunts. You know, that's such an incredible gift to a culture that's so chronically underparented. To be able to come into a place that's supposed to be like a family to say, oh, there's a, there's a whole lot of people here who are committed to you, who will care for you the way a mom and a dad would care for you. Let me make just, a, just an appeal to anyone here who would naturally side more on, on like the older side of this text, not the younger. Um, we really need you. We really need you. It's not time for you to, to take a back seat and let the young people emerge. Oh, we want you to cultivate them. Oh, yes, give them space to grow, give them space to learn, give them space to fail, but do so as spiritual moms and dads in this place. Bring your, your, your experiences, your giftings, your time in the word, your time in prayer. See, we need real people that we can look at and say, oh, my goodness, that's what 70 years with Christ looks like. 
That's what it looks like to go through a lifetime of, of, of joys and disappointments and to not become bitter towards the Lord. That's what it looks like to, to experience loss without having it absolutely wreck you. That's what, that's what it looks like to day in, day out, go through the, the, the ordinary, everyday things of praying and Bible and church attendance and serving and say, look at the strength and the stability that it created. We need to see a people that's, that, that Christ has become a bigger deal to them as they take steps towards eternity and this world has become less dazzling and less magnetic. So I just want to thank you and I want to invite you to, this is God's plan for you. It's Titus too. To be the kind of people that we can point our kids to, that we can look at. All right. Those are a little bit easier. Let's go into verses four and five. If anyone was going to bristle at this text, I imagine it was not the, hey, don't be slaves to too much wine or be dignified. What? Be dignified? I'm not doing that. Like, I don't think those are probably the ones that most of us reacted to. If there were ones that felt difficult for us, it was probably the second half of four into five. Train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. Um, Now, in saying that we might bristle against us, it would be unfair and unhelpful to think that everyone resists that. There are many people that love that. There are many men and women that love that and how it gets worked out into their lives. Culturally, I would say that Bellingham, at least as a culture, if I read that, probably hates that. There are many women and men that embrace that phrase as good and helpful, but I also recognize for a variety of reasons. There are there are a few of those phrases that may, uh, may cause us to trip over a bit. Um, so let me try to clarify. Let me give you the easy ones. If you're married, someone says to love your husbands and your kids. If you're married and have kids, love them. Deal? Is that like, no? Okay, we're not. I thought that was the easy one. This is not going to go well here. We got to get down to the S word here in a minute. So if you have a husband, you have kids, love them. Deal? Yeah, I don't know them, so I'm not saying they're lovable. I'm just saying to love them. Uh, Self-controlled, okay? Yeah, pure, kind, okay? Now this one, maybe it starts getting a little tricky, working at home. Teach them to be pure, working at home, okay? So questions, what does that mean? I'm not gonna be able to unpack all of it. Try to bring just a little bit of clarity. Um, John Stott says this in his commentary. He says, it would not be legitimate to base on this word either a stay-at-home stereotype for all women or a prohibition of wives being also professional women. What is rather affirmed is that if a woman accepts the vocation of marriage and has a husband and children, she will love and not neglect them. Are you okay with that? It would be, I think, disgenuine to the Bible to think that what was in mind here was the modern-day career woman. And actually, if you go to other parts of your Bible that were written way before this was written, this was written 2,000 years ago, you go back 3,000 years, and you have what is often looked at as like the, the chapter of all chapters on what a godly woman is, Proverbs chapter 31. And in that, you have a woman who loves her husband and loves her children and is creative and kind and brilliant and industrious and also makes money outside of the home. So when it says pure and then working at home, what it's simply saying is that your career must never become the priority over your family. We could probably say the same thing to the guys, too. Amen? Okay, so that one's a little, a little easier. 
Um, all right, the S word. Uh, kind and submissive to your own husbands. Um, again, I'm just seeking clarity. I don't have all the time to do this, but because this is such a loaded word, let me read a few quotes to you. Try to keep it a little, little crisp. Uh, this is from Michael Kruger from a post, Men Are You Submissive? The Bible is clear that everybody submits to somebody. Men and women are called to submit to the government. Children are called to submit to parents. Church members are called to submit to elders. Servants are called to submit to masters. And on it goes. I love this line. Submission is not a female virtue. It's a Christian virtue. The idea of having deference before the recognized leadership of another is every bit as masculine as it is feminine. So we take that, now let's dive in a little bit further. The Greek term for submit means to arrange under. It does not mean that a wife is to suppress her intelligence, talents, and gifts in the home. Rather, she should fully express these gifts in the purpose of supporting her husband in the spiritual leadership of the home. It comes from Brian Chapel. This is not saying to be quiet. Submission does not mean quiet. It doesn't mean unseen. It doesn't mean to leave your gifts at the table. In fact, it, it, it really wants the opposite. It's saying we need to partner together. And this is looking primarily, this can work out maybe in some other ways, but this is primarily talking about in the context of a marriage. And then here we have kids that we might partner together with our strengths to be able to make our family flourish. And there is a dynamic here to arrange oneself under the leadership of another. But it does not mean to be walked on. It does not mean to be abused. It does not mean to be shut up. That's not what it's saying. Let me give you one more from Denny Burke. The term submissive requires one to recognize and follow the leadership and direction of a recognized authority. In this case, the wife submits not to all men, but to one man, her own husband. And I recognize this isn't clearing it up for everyone in this room. I'm happy to talk with you afterwards. It is important to notice what Paul does not say. He could have said, husbands, subject your wives to yourself. In other words, he might have spoken in such a way that called on husbands to compel or coerce submission from their wives, even though that would have fit with the patriarchal context of the first century Greco-Roman world. That is not how Paul writes. Instead, he calls on wives to submit voluntarily to their husbands. The primary responsibility falls to the wives to submit themselves, not to the husbands explicitly to make them submit. It's really important. One of the tragedies is we take God's beautiful design for how we're to flourish and we use it as weapons to dominate and to subjugate. The Bible calls you men, if you're husbands, not to demand submission, but to do this, to love your wives like Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her to deny yourself for the flourishing of the family that God has entrusted to your care. Oh, for sure, to take initiative and responsibility? Absolutely. But not to demand compliance. And I will say, let me say this very clearly as we talk about this. In this church, if you are in a situation where someone is using God's word to create any sort of spiritual abuse in your life, we would love to walk with you. We would love to hear. We would love to help. We would absolutely love to help you. And I hate to make this so negative because this is supposed to be so good. It's supposed to be how do we bring a family together to live in such a way that everyone flourishes, not men being passive and, and distant and aloof and unengaged, but active 
and the role of responsibility for the good of their homes and wives coming alongside and saying, I'm, I joyfully want to come alongside your leadership, so lead. Again, I know it doesn't fix it for everyone, but I got permission from my wife to share that. So, no, okay. I thought, I thought it was funny. Um, all right, so principle, what does that look like in practice? It's a really good question. We're going to move on to the next verse. Um, <laughs> hold it, though. We'll come back. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. I think it's funny for the young guys to get one command. Does anyone else think that's kind of funny? Younger guys, be self-controlled. I watched a video this last week, and the title of the video is, is Guys Will Race Anything. And it was a video of these guys that had welded like a stand-up, like, uh, like, like drag race, like cards. These metal pipes going forth. They're standing on this little platform, and they have these little throttles. And the engine of it was uh, was a from a like a pressure washer. So these guys had taken the engine from a pressure washer, put it on this aluminum frame, and they're going like seventy down like a dirt track. Going, Woo! And I go, that's why it's one command. <laughs> it's like don't die. <laughs> like, control. Like, just control yourself. That's the only way you're ever going to get to grow up and be like the older guys in Titus 2 that are, that like are dignified. Like, and here's what it's saying is you can't get to maturity apart from self-control, self-mastery. You just can't do it. And what's interesting and in this text, it's the only phrase, the only exhortation that's given to all four groups, actually. The older guys are to be self-controlled. The older women are self-controlled and training. So the word training there means to train others to, like, to be self-controlled. Younger women are to be self-controlled and younger guys are to be self-controlled because you will never attain maturity without being a leader of self. A willingness to deny what I might want but is going to keep me from becoming the kind of people that God wants us to become. I love this story from Frederick the Great of Prussia. He was walking down the road outside of Berlin and supposedly he ran into a man who was standing, an older gentleman who was standing straight as narrow, very dignified. And Frederick the Great comes up to him and says, you know, who are you? And the man replies, I am a king. Frederick the, 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 the Great, he says, a king? You know, what kingdom do you rule? And the man, standing straight as an arrow, said this. He says, over myself. That's what it means to be self-controlled. Say, I, I have to willingly, intentionally say no to some things in order that I can say yes to other things. That the pathway for all of us, and I hope in in this room, you're either in the older category or you're in the younger category. I don't know where the switch happens. I don't think it's chronology as much as it is Christian maturity. But if you want to go from the younger to the older, it's through the path and through the door of self-control. If you want to stay in the spot of being godly older examples, the only way you maintain it is self-control. All right, conformity, clarity, now charity. And I'll do these last couple points pretty quickly. Um, so how does it work out? How does submission work out? How, how are we supposed to do it? Well, again, I'm not really going to tell you. Um, let me give you another handle, though. Romans 14. We read from Romans 12. Romans 14, another part of your Bible says this. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or fall, and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. And then the, the text goes on and talks about how different, genuine, sincere followers of Christ engage with God's word in some variations. One person esteems one day better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. What it's saying is that we answer to the Lord 
in this way, not primarily to one another. We're in community. We want to be accountable. We want to be teachable. But at the end of the day, we are all going to work out these verses in a range of ways. The Titus 2 strategy actually gives us this, a mentor apprentice. See, it's saying, I want you to take these principles of what it looks like to, what's it mean for me to be pure working at home? My wife, we talk about this stuff all the time. What's it look like for, she, she teaches full-time in the school district. We have four kids. How do we calibrate? I, I work this job. I also work for, uh, for a church planning organization that we're part of, and our lives are very busy. Are we, are we stepping away from God's word? How do we do that? And that'll often come out in conversations with other people. Where, where are we off? Where are we getting, where do we need some recalibration? And so God's strategy is that we might take the principles of this text and then in community with those that we trust that are mature to be able to say, how do we do this? What does this really look like as we're, we're you know, does, does this mean like, the, like who chooses the movie we watch for, you know, like family movie night and like who, who chooses, like how do, like the real specific questions that we get into, what does it mean for us to do this? And it's, and it's far too nuanced in the character and the giftings and the various callings and ages and, and backgrounds that we have to be able to give up one answer. And so, so the word here says, here's the handles for it. I want you to stay within the lines. I've given you the lines and the boundary markers I want you to stay in. And now in community, begin to work this out. I think one of, the, one of the great tragedies that local churches do is they get really specific, not, not by way of example. I think that can be very helpful. But they can get very specific by way of command and say, this is exactly what it has to look like for every single marriage. This is exactly what it means when it says pure working from home. That means, and some of you, I didn't want to fill in the blank for you. Some of you could fill in the blank. So we go back to this text, and so we have charity with one another. That we're all going to answer before God for how we stewarded this text. We get to figure it out in community. Conformity, clarity, charity, and the last one, opportunity. This text, I mean, there's not just the opportunity of having lives that flourish and are healthy. That's for sure what's behind this. But you have verses 5, verse 8, and verse 10 that all have this sort of punchline, why it matters how we live. You know, down in verse 10, it, it says, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So it makes it look more beautiful. They show it off. Or verse 8, so that others would have nothing evil to say about us. Or verse 5, at the end here of, of these statements towards as the older women are training the younger women, that the word of God may not be reviled. I love, again, this Philip's... Uh, translation or kind of thematic translation from that verse. It says, they should be examples of the good life so that the younger women may learn to love their husbands and their children, to be sensible and chaste, home lovers, kind-hearted, and willing to adapt themselves to their husbands. And then listen to this phrase, a good advertisement for the Christian faith. I love that line. I love the way that phrases it. Because remember the context here. This is a new church being birthed in a place that had not seen Christians. And what God is saying is that, that I'm rehumanizing you through, through my grace and through my instruction so that the watching world can look in and say, there's something different about that marriage. There's something different about that home. There's something different about those people. The, the, the way they forgive, the, the, the way they're gracious, the way they, they're, they're patient, the fact that they're, they're pure with the fact that they pursue, the, the fact they get along, that's incredible. 
And so the vision here is that we would live in such a way that the world, not perfectly, not perfectly, oh goodness, if it was perfect, we'd fall so, we'd fall so short of it. But people can look in and say, Christianity works. See, the story of the gospel is the story of, of, of God looking down at a humanity that wasn't working. People that were running from God's commands. People that were, were inventing ways to be ridiculous. And, and, and God in Christ came and wrapped himself in humanity and, and obeyed perfectly. He did all the things that we had failed to do. He, did, he followed it all perfectly. He never looked at God's commands as mere suggestions or opinions. He said, it's just what I'm gonna do. And he bowed his life and he, he lived it completely obediently. And then he went to a cross. We're on the cross, he, he died in the place. His perfection was swapped with our imperfection. His righteousness was, was placed on all those that are in Christ and he wore our unrighteousness and he took the justice and judgment of God for our ridiculousness and our sin. And then he went to a tomb and three days later, he rose from the tomb to say the offering worked and all that trust in Christ are forgiven. It's a stunning message. But that's not all of it. See, the implications of the gospel, the work of Christ, is not just to forgive us, but it actually is to transform us. See, the Bible uses language like you go from death to life. You are now new creations. That You, have, you used to have a heart of stone, and now you have a heart of flesh that I'm going to put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. See, what we got to do, church, redeemer, we got to give the world an image imperfect as it is. That Jesus is alive and the spirit is real and God's word is good and the way it works out in our lives is attractive. My voice cracked there a little bit because I'm still a younger guy becoming an older guy. <laughs> you know? A good advertisement to the Christian faith that says, oh, I know the one that can forgive you the, the, the most wicked things. And not the one that can grow you that not leave you stuck in your stuff. That's Titus 2. Carnivore diet, I don't know. Vegan diet, paleo, three Dr. Peppers a day. Massage your feet with olive oil. I don't know. Loads of advice on how to live. If you want to live well, this has got to be one of your texts. Let's pray. Father, your word is always gift, and I want to recognize again, I don't want to, I'm not going to end this negative, but I do recognize that it can be used and misused and co-opted, and oh God, help us to, to confess where we do that. Help us find healing where that's been done to us. Help us be the kind of church community that can be very honest and open, where we've gone outside of your clear word and we've begun to teach our opinions and preferences as the very doctrines of God. God, I also pray that we would not allow our opinions to usurp your word. We would not allow our cultural preferences and the, the things that we've been steeped in to recoil against every part of your word, which is always good and always right and always for our upbuilding and always for your glory. Father, I want to end really how I wanted this whole sermon to be. God, I thank you for those in our church. I thank you for our older saints. God, I thank you for the life that you've built. I thank you for those that have done the hard work day in, day out, by your grace, to attend to the things of faith, that they might be the kind of men and women that we could look at and say, man, I want to be like that. Point our sons and our daughters to and say, you imitate that because they're imitating Christ. God, I pray that they would not feel marginalized. They would not feel benched. I pray that they would have a real sense, of, like just a godly, holy um, urge to steward who they are, God. 
whichever in this room, whoever we are that we identify in that way. And I pray for those, the, the younger men and the younger women in this church, God, that you would give them what they need to season them and grow them, to marinate them in grace, that they would be a good advertisement for the Christian faith. God, we thank you. That's such a weak word. But we do, we thank you for, for saving us, for forgiving us, for all the ways we fail to live up to your standards. We thank you for the one that has. May we not lose sight of him as we seek to be more like him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen.